still am dreaming about it. Um, now, if you're just joining us here, let me explain what's going to happen right now. Um, we take the Word of God, we believe it's true and good, and what we do is we um, break it down, teach it word for word, line by line, uh, so that each of us can learn how to better study in our own context. We believe here that the, the fruition of a relationship with God isn't based in this hour and a half, but rather all the things that are happening in your own individual life, your walk with Christ, this just happens to be the corporate expression of what's happening hopefully with you and God on your own time. Does that make sense? And so what we're trying to do here is teach and train on how to become a missionary, how to become a lover of a city and lover of, of all those around us. And so I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. That's what we've been studying here in you know, Abathias. Uh, Hebrews has been an amazing book of encouragement for us on who Jesus is and his character, the fulfillment of who he is, and also how the stage was set for him to show up on the scene. Now I want to start where we left off last week in verse 6 of Hebrews 8. It's up here on the screen, and here's what we saw at the end. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. You remember last week I said this was interesting because our image of Christ serving primarily comes in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Problem is the Greek word for ministry is service. He is still at the right hand of God in majesty serving. As intercessor, as mediator, Jesus is active. Incredibly powerful passage. That is as much more excellent, the scripture says, the old as the covenant, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on, the scripture says, better promises. So, if you were with us last week, we stopped in the middle of chapter 8, and what we get the opportunity tonight is to see the better promises. What are these better promises that are enacted? So are you guys with me? I want to read uh, 7 through 13 in its entirety, and we'll rock and roll. You guys there? Sam there. Here we go. Thank you for the three of you. And Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I... Sh and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, look, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking, verse 13, of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's start here in verse 7. Now, for that first covenant, let's stop there already. There are certain words in the Christian language and language that you just act like you know, but you really don't, but you're ashamed to ask someone because you feel like you're supposed to know it. You know what I mean? Like you'll be in a conversation with another Christian and they'll throw out a word like propitiation and you give the friendly nod like you know what that means because you feel like if you were to sim simply ask them what the word means, like you would be ashamed of yourself. What's interesting though is Christians have learned this and so we use a whole bunch of language that we know no one's going to ask us about that makes us sound smart that we don't even know what we're saying. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And so covenant's one of those words. I feel like if I were to ask all of you what covenant really means, I feel like we get a really varying amount of answers and some of it not really true. So what I think we should do, if we're going to spend a whole night talking about covenant, we should probably define it. Is that cool with you guys? So I want to kind of start in the background and then we'll work forward. So 
uh, the Bible, this may seem obvious to you because you can read, uh, is broken down into two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we're done for tonight. Have a good one. Okay, now, um, now the Old Testament uh, is associated with what's called, and what we've been learning about in Hebrews, the Old Covenant. Now, interestingly enough, the Scripture is called in Hebrews, the New Covenant is represented by the New Testament as the Better Covenant. Okay? Now, the Old Covenant is, um, next slide, is characterized by the law. We've been learning this, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and the things that are established for the Jewish people by God is what this Old Covenant is uh, characterized by. Differently, the New Covenant is characterized by King Jesus. That's good. Uh, who Jesus is, apart from the law, Jesus fulfills the law, Jesus says of himself, and starts something completely different. Now, all these things are well and good. But the biggest issue of definition that we have to deal with tonight is not what is characterized by each of these covenants, but rather, what are the arrangements in each of these covenants? You see what I'm saying? There are arrangements, different arrangements, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that's where I want to spend the majority of our time right now. Now, uh, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that speaks of covenant is this word berith. Everyone say it with me. Berith, you are a Hebrew scholar. Now, berith means this. Look at this. An alliance or pledge between two parties. Berith, in the Old Testament understanding of the covenant, is God makes a covenant with these people and both parties, God and people, have responsibility within the covenant. Berith, the Old Testament idea of a covenant, is both God and the people have responsibility. Right? Does that make sense? Now, this is, this is what we've tried to implement then into the New Testament covenant. Unfortunately, that's not the picture by wording of the New Testament and the New Covenant, which is why I love the Bible. Even in the, the deep, rich words in the Hebrew and Greek, Greek, we see a phenomenal picture of what's really happening in the Scripture. So in the New Testament, the Greek word is diathake, uh, rather, and it literally means this. Look at this. Interesting. A disposition, arrangement of any sort, which, what? One wishes to be valid. Another way we could say it is a will or a testament someone makes. So in the Old Testament understanding, uh, there's two parties. They each have responsibility. In the New Testament understanding of the covenant, there is one who makes a covenant and finds themselves fully responsible to fulfill the covenant, not based on any other measure except themselves. And good for us, in this case, the covenant bearer in the new covenant is God who sent His Son and completely fulfills all the regulations and understandings of the covenant perfectly, making you and I a benefactor of the promise, the covenant, the pledge, the allegiance, but not held responsible. If we were held responsible, we would be just like the old covenant saints and Jews, which revealed that man is a complete failure. Are we together? Right? So if we're going to talk about covenant, then this is what we're going to talk about. The old two parties, equal responsibility, not necessarily equal, but shared responsibility. It's, let's use that. The new covenant, one, and one responsible, that's Father God. Now that we understand covenant, you all could regurgitate all of that by memory. Back to verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, growing up, did you guys ever have the floral patterned uh, furniture? Any of you guys? Do you still have it? You're, now you're embarrassed, right? 
Now, my family uh, in our living room, 1987, that's right, I was alive then, uh, a little bit humbling to admit that, uh, we had this amazing floral colored with uh, pink um, accent of furniture. Now, this was embarrassing to have folks over because, you know, you're trying to act manly and then you're sitting on a pink couch, but uh, regardless, uh, what we did, uh, what my mom would do is every once in a while, she would get tired of the arrangement. And so I don't know if your parents ever did this, but eventually they would just like move things around. Have you ever done, you know, and like, oh, and this couch was under this window. Now it's going to go here. And this, and then all of a sudden, like my mom would step back and act as if it was a brand new living room. Look at this. It's like the light reflects differently now. And this couch has so much more room. And we, the popcorn sits nice here. There, there's really, there's nothing new. There's nothing new about it. But it's just like a, a new kind of variation. We have a human tendency to get tired of things and just want something new. Agree? Now, it's funny when, when we're talking about furniture. It's a little less funny when we're talking about marriage. That's what happens a lot in marriages in our culture. The husband or wife starts to get tired of seeing the same person, the same face, having the same conversations, dealing with the same issues. So eventually they start looking at a woman or man um, that isn't their husband or wife. And so they fulfill this natural human tendency in us to leave what's old and seek something that's new. Well, I want to tell you this. That's not what's happening here in the Scripture. In other words, like God doesn't get tired of the furniture and just rearrange it one day and bring out the new covenant. You see, the new covenant was always the plan, and so was the old. See what I'm saying? What God has done in ordaining the old covenant, like we saw last week, is that it acts as a shadow, as a picture of what the new covenant would be in its power. And so the Old Covenant acts in very uh, distinct purpose as a stage to set up the New Covenant. I think we could look at this and just say, well, God saw that the Old Covenant wasn't working, and He was really surprised by that. And so one day He says, okay, I better send Jesus now. No, Jesus was always the plan. The New Covenant was always the plan. And the Old Covenant had to be enacted to reveal that man is a complete failure and needs Jesus. Are Are we together? So all of this is working together so that this new covenant can really be established. And so the writer goes on here in verse 8 to say this. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Now when you're reading the scripture on your own, you need to notice the little things. The um, quotation marks, the exclamation points, the colons, the periods. Though they were added later in the canon, what do you notice there before behold? What is that? You grammatical English folks. Those are quotation marks, and the rest of you flunked everything, okay? Now, um, when you see quotation marks in the Scripture, what does it tell you? What does it reveal to you? That we're quoting something in the Old Testament. Well, what he's quoting here is literally, listen, the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. From Jeremiah chapter 31. Quick note on Jeremiah, I think it's important. Jeremiah writes at a time where uh, the Israelites, the Jews, are held for 70 years in captivity by Babylon. For those of you that were here when we were studying Daniel, you're very aware of this. And so Jeremiah, tasked by God, is given the very interesting opportunity to encourage a people who are very discouraged, very oppressed. And his message, main message in Jeremiah is, look, you're going to be in bondage for 70 years, but you don't need to take military action, rest. This will come to an end. You'll go back to your land. And more importantly, a final restoration will come in the new covenant. In other words, what I'm saying is, in Jeremiah 31, God speaks through Jeremiah to speak of the new covenant in Christ. Pretty incredible. So what does he say here? The days are coming when I will establish a new covenant. Well, we just said, in our study of covenant, 
that in the old, two, in the new, one. And what do you see here? When I will establish. Let me show you what I mean. Exodus chapter 19. Now therefore, in God establishing the old covenant, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. All right? Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you see the difference? Go back to verse 8 here. Go back to verse 8. Verse 8 in Jeremiah we saw, when I will establish. And what did Exodus 19 say? When you. There's been a shift of responsibility. God has said, you can't do it. I will do it. When I establish, not when you try to establish. You see? And then he says this, when you establish a new covenant. Now, there's two main Greek words that are used to describe this word new. Just to get them right. The first one is neos. Uh, let me say it this way. You, you guys got you a good pair of jeans? Anyone got you a good pair of jeans? They're hard to come by, aren't they? You know what I'm saying? I mean, when you find that good pair of jeans that just, you know, that just you feel good in, where you, it doesn't matter how many times you wash it, it doesn't encroach on your personal space, you know what I mean? Just, you, just feel, you just feel good, you know? When you find a good pair of jeans, can we just agree it's awesome? Am I the only one here? I mean, I will, wear a new, I will wear the same pair of jeans every day. I do not care, right? I will wash them every other week, but I will wear them, all right? Now, the Greek understanding of neos is this. Like, I'm going to try to find, after these wear out and they get a little bit holy from all of its use, I'm just going to go to the store and find the same pair of jeans. Well, the problem is, as many of you realize this, when you find a good pair, you just need to buy like 10 of them because you go back and they're out of stock and the commies have put them on sale and every, you know, everyone's selling them now. You can't find them again is what I'm saying, right? Well, a different understanding of the other Greek word. So the first Greek word is something wears out and you just get a new one. The other Greek word is kainos. And it means new, and that's what we're seeing here, new in every form and in every fashion. So this covenant... It's not just like putting on a new pair of clothes or a new uh, shirt after it's been worn out. This is a completely new kind of covenant. We'll see this unwrap through the rest of this passage. And part of it is seen here at the end of uh, verse 8. And this new covenant is going to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, Israel divides into two kingdoms for a season, into the, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, uh, Judah and Israel. Now, interestingly enough, I think this is quoted in the prophetic words of Jeremiah to reveal how universal the gospel will be, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. So listen, he's establishing in his readers' minds the power of this new covenant. And then just to help them a bit, he says this in verse 9. Not like the covenant. So this new covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, I know not many of you are parents, and I know you know that I know that you... Anyway, I talk about parenting a lot because I am one. I have three kids. You guys know this. Literally, one of the best things about parenting, you can look forward to this, one of the best things. We're at Incredible Pizza last night. Have you guys been there? It's incredible. It's like a circus of love for children. I mean, you just... And they, they changed their pizza, so it got better. No longer cardboard. It actually like, has some pizza flavor. It's good. <laughs> so we get out of the van, and my son uh, Dawson takes off across the parking lot, uh, fending his way between many vehicles that about hit him. 
But my daughter, listen, best part about parenting, we get to like the edge of where we're going to have to cross the street, right? And I just put out my, my man paw, you know? Right? And what happens? You, like, and the, the, the cool thing is when you're a parent, like you, you don't say like, hold my hand. And this is awesome because it makes you feel like a million bucks. You just put your hand out and then within a second you feel this little hand that grabs yours. And I mean, it's the coolest feeling ever. It's a lot like in seventh grade when you're dating. And... Um, <laughs> And, and you know you pulled one of these one time, just yesterday, unfortunately, for some of you. You really wanted to hold the girl's hand, right? And you did the, like, the hold it out here in between you with the blanket and the pillow on top. Have you pulled that one, right? And you, like, got your hand so wide. It's like, look, put your hand in mine, my sister. You know, this is going to work out well, right? The embarrassing thing is some of you were just doing that right now here in church. You feel bad. You're not like, I'm back to the Bible, you know. Um, we have this interesting, interesting thing with us uh, to do with hands. Like we love this, we love the feeling of touch and hands are just an interesting object. But I want to show you what he means in this passage. It's not the parent that reaches out his hand and then the child grabs it. And I want you to see that. What is the language here? God took them by the hand. So he didn't reach out and wait for them to grab it. He, in his sovereignty, in his love and his grace and his mercy of the Jews in ancient Egypt, grabbed them and pulled them out of slavery. It wasn't a father who waited and held his hand out and said, check here if you like me. He said, I'm going to get you. You're my people. I will save you by my right mighty hand. You see? So it's in this old covenant, what he's saying is, it's not like this. Because what did they do? They did not continue in the covenant. They showed themselves as failures. God established a covenant. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And the people thought they could roll. Let me show you in Exodus 24. They thought they could do it. Moses came and told the people, as he's establishing the law, all the words of the Lord and the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said in unison, as the music rises underneath, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what they say. The law is presented to them, and they say, in a movie moment, in unison, well, we can do that. We will all do it. We'll do it together. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Next slide, verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Look at this. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. This gets interesting. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Look. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they add, and we will be obedient. That doesn't go so well for them. They make promises that they cannot keep. They tell God that they will obey, that they will follow. And as is evidenced by the rest of the Old Testament, they cannot in and of themselves obey God. And the whole understanding of the Old Covenant then is man is a failure. Man cannot follow God. Man will not follow God. Man will seek after his own desires. Are we together? So they tried, but as the writer said in Hebrews, they didn't continue in my covenant. So it's not going to be like that covenant. There's something else that's needed. Next slide. Verse 9. 
Not the covenant like I made, for they did not continue it there at the end. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They didn't continue my covenant, so guess what? I showed no concern. Why? Because under the old covenant, that was the rules. You obey and you will, you will be mine. You don't? No go. Now, I think you can see our problem. If something doesn't happen, that will be our reality. If something doesn't change, if something new doesn't become our new existence, then this same yoke of burden that the old covenant provided will be exactly what you and I follow underneath. And now all of a sudden, the beauty of the new covenant. Verse 10, look at this. Love this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Look at this. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Let me explain what's happening. The law comes down, Charlton Heston, on what? On what? Tablet, stone, okay? You've seen the movie, you've heard the awesome low voice, right? That's what it came down in. Stone, physical, things they could hold. In fact, uh, so much so in the ancient Jewish world, uh, there was even some scripture just to remember the law that they would literally like write it on their forehead straight up or they would wear, wear bracelets at times just to remember the law. But now all of a sudden something is happening. This law has now been written on the hearts of those who believe. So a heart surgeon would say, so does this mean literally that, you know, when I do heart surgery of a Christian, I'm going to look in with a magnifying glass and I'll be able to read things on someone's heart. That would be interesting. That's not what we're talking about here. Let me explain what we are talking about. The scripture says that when we believe in Christ, come to faith, trust in the Lord, that we are given the Holy Spirit as a gift to guide and empower and mostly exalt Christ in our life. And so when the scripture alludes to in Jeremiah 31 and here quoted in Hebrews 8, is that because the Spirit resides in us, that the literal law has been written on our hearts. It's gone from a physical thing to a spiritual thing to a heart thing. It's written on us and in us. And then what happens? The biggest difference with the new covenant as it pertains to our heart is it causes us to desire to follow God. That's the big difference. The old covenant, people in and of themselves were not even desiring outside of a few examples to follow God. But the blessing of the new covenant is he gives us a spirit not just to help us desire to follow him, but to empower us to do so. He writes it on our hearts. It's permanent. It's incredible. But unfortunately what happens is that flesh, that old man, though the scripture says in Romans 7 is dead, is crucified, it starts to creep back up. And then it creates some distance with how he ends this in verse 10. He says, because of this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, one of the biggest promises of the new covenant is you are called a son and daughter of God. You're his. He's your God. You're his people. It's a complete identity shift. But though the law is written on your heart, that old man, that old flesh, those struggles start to creep in. It creates in you an identity crisis. You know or you think you know or you thought you knew you were a son or daughter of God. But now this sin has got you all entangled. And so you find yourself looking in the mirror wondering who you are. And that's just the place of doubt and lack of assurance 
that is so critical to fight the gospel. It's going back to the old covenant. We've allowed the old covenant to still cripple us, though we're under the new covenant. Are you with me? Does that make sense? The old man starts to creep up, and so we don't embrace what Paul says in Romans 7. Look at this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Any you relate to this, right? I desire, I desire to follow Christ. Why does evil seem so close? But look what he says. For I delight in the law of God in what? In my inner being, Paul understood. The law is written on my heart. So I delight, I desire. It's written here in my inner being. It can't be taken away. That's the point. You break the layer of flesh. You get inside me. It can't be taken out. I can't break a covenant. I didn't start. But I see in my members another law raging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And I know so many of you feel this. You're like, why when I come to Christ is this war still raging? Because that's our reality. We're a new creation, completely changed, regenerated is the theological word. And so Paul says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. And I love that statement. It confesses who he knows he is, but he's not a man in an identity crisis because of what he said. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I delight in his law. I know where my saving comes from. It comes from Christ. And so I look in the mirror day after day after day, if mirrors existed in Paul's time, and he says, I am a son of God. That's yours in the new covenant. Son of God. Not a nation chosen by God, but a son or a daughter called by God. Do you see the difference? Powerful, powerful stuff. Next slide. Let's keep going. Uh, let's keep going here to verse 11. And they shall not teach, kind of a weird verse here in 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Let me explain. I find it interesting that somehow, Social economic status in our culture seems to dictate the receiving of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel. Let me say it this way. Somehow, uh, some of our greatest judgments of people come in our understanding of their social economic status. So we see someone who's wealthy and we can tell because they're blinging up and down and whatever it is that they do, we know they're wealthy and we look at them and some of you instantly think they're just living off daddy's inheritance, they're just this, they're just that. Doesn't it seem to you that sometimes your greatest judgments of people have to do with where they sit socioeconomically? It works the same way with poverty. Unfortunately for many of you, you see someone who's impoverished and you instantly think to yourselves, get a job. Well, the cool thing is about the gospel is it sees no barriers like you see. From the least to the greatest. Whoever you would consider the least and whoever you would see the greatest, it doesn't matter. The gospel is for all. Isn't it interesting then that when Jesus comes and he's looking at those who think they're the greatest and the religious elite and the Pharisees, that he's consistently smacking them in the face, in the face with their false religion and ideas of Christology? It's unbelievable. I'm just encouraging you, there is no social economic barriers within the gospel. And so we all need to break down in our pursuit of loving others with a missional heart to stop seeing people through the lens that culture sees them. We must see them as God sees them, and that's as people, all with the same need, and that's Christ, same as you. When that transition happens in your mind, 
And you don't see people based on the, the girth of their wallet, but rather as Christ sees them as all in need of His grace, then all of a sudden the whole game changes, doesn't it? Because then you're like, I, I, don't, I just want to know your story. Just tell me. I don't want to put these barriers up that don't need to be there. Now, all of this scripture so far has been building to one of the greatest benefits of the new covenant. Look at this, verse 12. Jeremiah 31 is where this appears. In the Old Testament, sin is atoned for, as we've been learning throughout Hebrews, by a priest who goes and makes sacrifice over and over and over. Listen, sin is never forgotten under the Old Covenant. What's the worst thing that someone's ever done to you? I'm not going to have you raise your hand and share. That could get interesting. Well, this person sitting right next to me... Uh, um, what's the worst thing that someone's ever done to you? I want you to kind of picture that unless it was too horrible. Imagine that that person does that for 27 years straight to you every day. Worst thing possible they could ever do. They do it for 27 years straight, every single day. And then one day they show up on your doorstep after 27 years in one day and they knock on your door kind of give a sweet knock, whereas before it may have been a little bit raging. And that you open the door and they say, hey, um, look, I realized I was an idiot. I'm really sorry. I'd like you to forgive me. Now, I'm not sure how you would react in this moment. But if the worst thing that had happened to me was done to me every day for 27 years, and then that person showed up on my doorstep, like there would be a, a good possibility that behind my trench coat, would be like a good semblance of grenades. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know, like we have no human understanding for the depth of forgiveness. The scripture says in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Do you understand? Though your disobedient, idolatrous heart, completely wayward, and you could do it for your existence and in a moment because of the new covenant all of your sins completely forgiven and forgotten. The weight of the gospel seems so incredibly light, doesn't it? What Christ has done, the burden that's been lifted the forgiveness that is yours. And yet I know so many of you still cowarding behind your shame and your regret about what happened back here. You're still holding yourself in the eyes and schemes of an eternity at these sins that you've already repented for and that the scripture says because of the new covenant are forgotten. And so what we're doing is we're heaping in piles the old covenant back on top of our shoulders when the biggest blessing of the new covenant is my iniquities are as far from the east as from the west. They're forgotten. They're gone. That's the power of the gospel. And I'm encouraging you, my friends, in your pursuit of understanding the difference between Christianity and everything else, it's the depth of this love and the depth of this grace 
No other religion even begins to describe it even close to this, let alone really adhere to it. So, he says all of these things, and then he ends with this in verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. You don't see that word every day in the Bible, so let's do a little work on it. Uh, have you ever bought milk before or after the uh, expiration date? It becomes cottage cheese. Have you noticed this? It's kind of fun, like in college. You get your buddies, you know, you buy a thing of milk, and you tell everyone it's new milk, and you pour them a glass, and you watch them drink the curded nastiness. But the idea of obsolete here is that things have a due date, an expiration. Milk and all kinds of other foods do. So it's not that the old covenant is completely gone. It's that it's served its purpose. It's now obsolete. Its expiration date has come and gone. Are we together? It had substance and it had meaning at one point, but it was mostly to point out the things that were to come. So then he goes on to say, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, forgotten, done, completely fulfilled in the person of Christ. So I sit back from all these verses and I ask the question that I would imagine many of you are asking, why do I care? Why does covenant matter? Why do I care? Why is this so interesting? Why should I be able to describe what covenant is? Can I tell you? Put up this last slide for me here. It's the verse from Exodus that we looked at earlier. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Here's what I want to know is, have you ever done this before? In a moment of repentance, in a moment of brokenness, have you ever told God never again? Have you ever told God this time I'm serious? Have you ever told God, I know I just said this to you three days ago, but this, it's never going to happen again, I promise. Have you ever sat in your tears before? And I mean you meant it. God, this time it will not happen again, I promise you, God. And I mean, you dug deep in your heart and you were quoting scripture and all, like it meant, you meant it. It's not going to happen again. God, I promise, this time I'm serious, never. I will obey you, we will do the things you ask. And then the pain of four days later seeing yourself saying the same thing. You were never meant to make a promise. The work and the promise is fulfilled in Christ. The power of the new covenant is that it's a one-sided contract. It needs not your signature. Christ has already paid the debt in full. He has already completely obliterated your sins. And our response to what Christ has done is seen in James 2 that faith without works is dead. We will respond in obedience, not because we're fearful of the dictator that seems to be God in the Old Testament, though he's full of mercy and grace. But we follow him because of what he's done and yet you believe in your heart that you need to say something to God 
because maybe he'll look down and be like, you go for it. You don't understand. It's already been done for you. You don't need to go for anything. And I believe in my heart at times that I've got something to offer God in that moment. And so I'm throwing out all kinds of promises. God, this time I'll do this differently, and this time it'll be differently, and then you get to the point where you're bargaining and you know what this feels like. God, if you would just do this, then I'll do this. And we're making empty promises that we cannot keep. I would much rather find myself in moments of deep, true repentance, feeling in my flesh as though I should promise God something. I need to find myself resting in His promises, quoting His truth, believing in His eternity. You see what I'm saying? I can either rest in the things that I can never fulfill or completely sit back in the things He's already fulfilled. And that's the power of the new covenant. And that's what he's trying to get into his reader's understanding. The old is done. The new has come. You're a new creation. Completely fulfilled in Christ. So stop with the empty promises. They don't work. They never will. There will never be a time where your promise will mean a darn thing. It's all in Christ. And because of that, rest in it. Give thanks for it. Go and live in freedom and in joy because of what he's done. So I know so many of you, even yesterday and today and the day before, have found yourself in that very place. I'll never look at porn again. We'll never struggle with sexual temptation in this relationship again. I'll never take another sip. I'll never take another hit. Never, God, I promise. We as the church have the opportunity to rest in his promises and his truth and his covenant and not your empty words and not mine. And then the world will look in and they'll see you believe in something that is much greater than yourself. And we have the opportunity to say, you're precisely right. Let's stand together. In the late 90s, it was called rededication. All these altar calls that people would have to like rededicate their life. And every single time, what it was saying was, I'm going to go forward, and what I'm telling God is that this time, I'm going to be super serious about my faith. And so I'm going to rededicate my life. And I'm going to say this other prayer. And God, see, that means something this time. I'm re-giving giving it to you again. Listen. All of this language is to get his readers and to get us to a place of assurance. I can be assured in the power of the gospel that I cannot break a covenant I didn't start.
that I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that I'm a son, that though I struggle and though I may fail, repentance and forgiveness is near. And when I look in the mirror day after day, I can continually communicate, I'm a son and I'm a daughter of a God who knows me intimately, who loves me, and who has been gracious enough to wipe out my sins and remember them no more. No more empty promises. God, I ask in my friends and in me, you will take the pride out of us that longs to offer you something and you will help us with the law that's written on our heart to know that you've already offered it all. 